0: Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. This week, I have a very special episode. While audio is my pride and joy, you won't want to miss this one on YouTube, where I've made some big investments, because my guest this week is a husband, father, grandfather, author, and leader who's been a blessing to me and many of my friends on our Christian journey, Pastor Doug Wilson.
1: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men you are the renaissance evangelical
2: christians are nice and so when they lie it is in the interests of keeping things nice they therefore have a hard time comprehending those unsavory characters who lie in the interests of advancing causes which are mean and nasty Moreover, these evangelicals, having made nice the standard instead of scripture, have drifted so far away from their biblical moorings that when they encounter the rare specimen who comes along speaking the truth, they think he is simply working out a new form of being mean and nasty. As the saying goes, truth sounds like hate if you hate the truth. Things are in quite a jumble. Philosophuddle The Apostle Paul was at great pains to warn us about vain philosophy, and I think he must have had Kant especially in mind. Quote, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Colossians 2.8 Full disclosure here, I majored in philosophy, and I did get two degrees in it, and so some might think that I'm not exactly the one to be talking. So yes, that is true, I did get those degrees. But I hasten to add that I am very, very sorry, and I have no intention of doing that ever again. Actually, all that aside, what I was doing was reconnoitering. I was behind enemy lines people when the classified files on this great epistemic conflict are finally opened up to the public it will be revealed that there were times when i had to go up to the library and read philosophy journals i had to read them aloud to myself so as to maintain some kind of forward motion it was like putting on asbestos hip waders and walking across a stream of rapidly cooling magma so Be that as it may, the apostolic warning against philosophy was laid down for Christians. Now I know that this is the moment when some Orthodox Christians who are trained in philosophy will want to protest, saying that it is possible to maintain a faithful Christian witness in the halls of philosophy and that they have seen it done. And i cheerfully grant the point. I, too, have seen it done. But we need to remember that we are living in a generation in which the evangelical church at large is drowning in oceans of vain deceit, has gotten lost in the murkwood of man's traditions, and is badly mired in the swamps of the world's rudiments. If there were ever a generation that knew how to avoid the snares of vain philosophy, our generation never met those guys. Correspondence and coherence. I bring the issue of philosophy up because I want to point Christians to the right side of a philosophical distinction that many of our number have been getting consistently wrong. At first, there didn't seem to be major consequences to getting it wrong, because it was just a red mark on your philosophy quiz. But now, there you are in the ladies' room, and Bruno's in the next stall, and his trans partner lesbian wannabe is at the sink shaving, and you are wondering how things ever got to this point. You are also wondering how you're going to get back outside, back to those great, great deals at Target. How did we get to this point? Well, I will tell you. It has to do with that red mark on your philosophy quiz. The reason you didn't notice that you were getting answers marked wrong on that quiz is that you were being encouraged in it by your therapist. He taught you to believe that the emotions you were feeling about your father were, quote-unquote, your truth, and that made you feel good whenever you had a session with your therapist. The correspondence view of truth says that a statement is true if that statement corresponds to the actual way things are in the world. Please note that I italicize that word corresponds. You say it is raining outside, and that indicative statement is true if and only if droplets of water are falling out of the sky in a place that is normally what we refer to as outside. Somebody else says that it is not raining outside, and the first speaker offers to walk out to the parking lot with him in order to test his assertion. The second speaker declines to do so, saying that his assertion, quote-unquote, works for him, and as he is a stubborn cuss, he sticks to a story all day long. This is the coherence view of truth, or as some might describe it, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. The correspondence view is an objective view. The coherence view is a subjective view. The correspondence view measures the truth of a statement by how it lines up with the facts out there in the world. The coherence view measures the truth of a statement by how it relates to other statements. This can be confusing to some because the correspondence view is also going to cohere but a coherence view need not correspond to anything except the subjective whims of the person who is sticking to a story. Faithful Christians know that the correspondence view is absolutely necessary because there must be a correspondence between Christ rose from the dead and Christ actually doing so outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. If that statement does not correspond to the facts of what actually happened, then we are all still in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 America's Grand Mall Seizure Now, America's current dilemma is that we are putting up with the most absurd and manifest lies, bunched-up clusters of lies. The problem is not that everyone believes the lies, because a lot of people don't, but we do put up with them. The people running this grand charade lie, and lie, and then lie some more. After doing all this, they retain their positions such that they can lie to us all again tomorrow. In a healthy society, they would be sitting outside the town picking feathers out of the tar. If tolerating the ongoing presence of a lie were a mild tremor, America is currently going through a grand mall seizure with both of Uncle Sam's heels drumming the floor. Think about it. What manifest lies do we tolerate? We put up with statements that assure us that Joe Biden is not mentally impaired. We put up with masks on airplanes. We fail to laugh when someone tells us their preferred pronouns. We put up with the CDC. We put up with the notion that Joe Biden was swept into office in a tsunami of enthusiasm, 80 million strong. We put up with the idea that free speech exists in the world of big tech. We put up with the notion that universities and colleges care about the life of the mind. We put up with the suggestion that Disney cares for the best interests of children. We put up with the idea that CNN has viewers. And the American people rose up with one voice. And we know this because we can hear them bleating in the barn. Quote, We know they are lying. They know they are lying. They know we know they are lying. We know they know we know they are lying, but they are still lying. Alexander Isevich Solzhenitsyn. And then there was this gem sent into us by a reader in which I published yesterday. Quote, since all genuine problems and matters of critical importance are hidden beneath a thick crust of lies, it is never quite clear when the proverbial last straw will fall or what the straw will be. This, too, is why the regime prosecutes, almost as a reflex action preventatively, even the most modest attempts to live within the truth. Václav Havel, The Power of the Powerless. So the one place in our town where I can count on blind acceptance of all the medical lies is the hospital. Sir, I'm afraid that your mask is under your nose. Okay, groomer, it is, of course, a sin to tell lies, but it is also complicity to listen to them. You don't want to be the devil telling lies, but neither should you want to be the sons of the devil listening to them. Quote, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John eight forty four ESV. All of these lies, and I do mean all of them, are calculated to give them absolute control over every aspect of our lives. And when that control is established, they will begin the deconstruction of man in earnest. This is a different phrase than Lewis's abolition of man, but it amounts to the same thing. What matters to them is the coherence view of truth, and because they will be in control, it will be their coherence, not yours and not mine not God's either, because God's word corresponds to God's world. And their lust to control everything, libido dominandi, is a lust that simply will not stop. Hell's yawning maw is never satisfied, and neither will the lusts of these people be satisfied. You should remember what line we were being fed when fell was handed down. All homosexuals want is the same right to marry that you have. Nothing else will change. Now... If parents in Florida don't want depraved second-grade teachers grooming the kids by explaining the wonders of sexual perversion to them, they are reviled and dismissed as haters. So we went from, we just want to be suburban married couples like you, to hand over your kids pretty fast. Tell me this, will a society that doesn't know what a woman is be able to tell us what a child is? And if we don't know what a child is, then what is pedophilia actually, when all is said and done? Is not pedophilia an artificial social construct, hmm? We will know that the coherence view of truth has established full control when all the lusts line up. And believers read this and want to know what to do to fight it. The answer is pretty straightforward. Stop putting up with lies. Stop going along with lies. Stop pretending that their truth veneer is a white oak plank.
0: Being a Christian has been an interesting experience. I've explored many other faiths before, but none have been quite like this. It's pretty easy going through life as a universalist. No one really demands that you apologize for anything or explain anything. You get along with almost everyone and there's never any call to bring up religion at all except to talk about that sweet ayahuasca experience you just had, the new meditation app you're trying. Oh, and did you see that Sadhguru's coming to town? He's like the new Dalai Lama. Except there's one small problem with universalism. It doesn't really know what to do about evil that there might be bad people doing bad things, which they know are bad, and that these people enjoy doing the bad things because they're bad. Prior to 2020, it was possible to claim that such behavior was conspiracy theory. But in the past two years, it's been increasingly difficult to make that claim. Ghislaine Maxwell, who spoke at the UN, was convicted in federal court by a jury of her peers guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of five counts of buying and selling children for the purposes of sex. And that's just one example. There have been so many examples of evil in the past couple years that even the liberal public intellectual Naomi Wolf wrote an op-ed saying that maybe, just maybe, intellectuals should reconsider their dismissal of evil. And I'll link that article in the show notes. So once you look evil in the face, you're forced to acknowledge that just one religion speaks about it convincingly, Christianity. Then you get baptized and everything changes. Suddenly all the conveniences of universalism disappear and you become far less popular. Suddenly you can see that people sin, and as a result they suffer because you've suffered, and you feel called to say something about it to them. That makes you even less popular. Sometimes you even mention that you're a Christian, and you become a dump bucket for every historical grievance against a priest, a parent, or a relative who professed the faith with their mouth, but didn't practice it with their hands. And you discover that the entire world rebels against the call to repentance almost as much as the individuals around you do, although slightly more than you once did. Okay, not so bad. You're saved, so you can take it. Be courteous but firm. Dig deep into the word of God and root yourself there. Speak with compassion for suffering directly into the heart of the gathering wickedness. Then you look around to find Christian leaders who are willing to do the same, and you discover something odd. There aren't many. Aren't pastors reading the same book you are? Aren't they in the same current year seeing the same current events? Watching the same civilizational collapse is not now of all times the time to speak? On the surface, it would seem not. but there are a few notable exceptions, which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Pastor Doug Wilson, and among his many roles he's a husband, father, grandfather, author, YouTube star, though he might disagree with me on that one, and the leader of the Christkirk Christian community in Moscow, Idaho. He's also a man unafraid to speak the truth in a quiet but firm, Compassionate but direct voice, sprinkled with a genuine sense of grandfatherly humor, and the occasional dad joke. You'd think that this would make him popular, and it has. My friends and I listen to one video of his per day, calling it our daily Doug. But at the same time, I've discovered he causes friction within the Christian community, apparently for saying things that we all mutter under our breath or say aloud over cigars and whiskey, but he's much more cheerful about them. And it's that truth speaking, based in timeless biblical principles that makes him unpopular. Can't we all just get along? Well, no. Are we getting along now? Does getting along mean appeasing those who scream the loudest, giving in to their sense of entitlement, and in the recent words of Dr. Jordan Peterson, give in to their anger at God for the crime of being? No, it doesn't mean that. We get a say. Men get a say. Christians get a say. And if you don't like it, as Pastor Doug might say, tough tutus. In our conversation, Pastor Doug and I discussed the lessons he learned from his father, constructive versus destructive dominance, how men's sexual cycles need to follow women's sexual cycles for society to flourish, how outlawed Christian communities like his up in Idaho and mine here at Apologia in Phoenix are coming back into fashion, how the famine of fatherhood ties into America's current land migrations, advice for new and longtime Christians, and finally, a brilliant perspective on post-millennialism my favorite part of this conversation is just how many quotable quotes Doug drops throughout the interview, and if you head over to follow me on Twitter at Ren of Men, you'll be able to grab a few of them in text. Also, a quick note before we begin, we had some audio difficulties with Doug's earbuds for the first 20 minutes or so. Please be patient, it gets sorted out. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast from the Christkirk Christian community in Moscow, Idaho. Pastor Doug Wilson. Pastor Doug Wilson, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today.
2: Uh, Good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation.
0: So um, I have recently finished uh, a book of yours called Future Men, and it's one of the best books about masculinity that I've read, especially recently, because it doesn't deal with just men, which many books on masculinity do. It deals with boys. And I think that that's a question that doesn't really get asked nowadays. And so uh, I want to start by talking about that book um, and uh, and a quote from it. uh, The heart of masculinity involves a willing assumption of an appropriately assigned responsibility. And there's so much debate around masculinity today, but I think you've put your finger on something really, really important. I wonder if you can comment on it.
2: Um, Yes, these are many things that I've, I've frankly learned from my dad. Um, who was a wonderful, wonderful father. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and one of the principles, and some of these things I formulate in my own words, but I learned many years ago that authority flows to those who take responsibility. Mm -hmm. And it runs away from those who seek to evade responsibility or who make excuses. So um, when someone, let's say a young boy, doesn't uh young boys don't like failing they don't like oftentimes their their masculinity is still in formation and is sometimes brittle mm-hmm. so so uh, they try to protect that masculinity by shying away from taking the responsibility for something having gone wrong or something like that and one of the uh, pr- principal uh, responsibilities of parents is to teach their boys to lean into. Responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I, I define masculinity as the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. That's that's what I think it is.
0: And that was that was something that was handed to you by your father.
2: Yes, very much so. Uh, my, my dad was wonderful at taking responsibility, took responsibility for us, and rather than that taking making us saying, "Oh well, then never mind, I don't have to do anything." Uh, what he was doing was modeling for us. How to take responsibility.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: when he when he took, um, it's not a zero sum game. In other words, right. when he when he took responsibility for us, that taught us to take responsibility for ourselves, and then downstream for others.
0: Can you give an example of, of that just sort of comes to mind of, of how, of how that showed up? Because I know this is a question that many men are grappling with today. Like what is masculinity? I was just talking to a friend about this yesterday. Like, is it this set of things? Maybe there's no, of course, culture says there is no definition of masculinity. It's all socially constructed. How do you, you know, is it about being a father? Well, what about men who can't be fathers? But it seems there's something essential about the assumption of responsibility that is universal. That whether you're a father or not, whether you're a boy or a man, it it crosses all the different spectrum of life. So maybe you can um, put a pin on like when when this kind of landed for you.
2: Sure, it's it's not. Uh, let me insert um, something very important here. Let's say right. a, a man can't be a father for his wife is infertile or something like that. Right. Um, that doesn't change the definition at all. Yes. Because. Um, because you can still be an uncle, you can still be an older brother, you can still be an elder in the church. You can, you can, you can step a fatherhood is broader than mere biological fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly gets exhibited there, but any responsible man can grow up into fatherhood by embracing sacrificial responsibility gladly. Um, so that, that really is. Um, uh, important. Another important caveat at the beginning of this is, and this is probably the hardest thing I I have uh, the the hardest thing to communicate that I find around this whole thing, and that is the important distinction between responsibility and guilt or fault.
3: Mm.
2: All right. So um, oftentimes you're responsible for something and you're guilty, mm. but the, but they're not they're not synonyms. They're not the same thing uh, at all. Um, sometimes you can be both, but they're not. Uh, so, for, and here's an example. Um, suppose you buy a business, and and let's say the accounts are payable and accounts receivable turn out not to have been what we're represented, mm-hmm. right? And let's say it was all technically honest and legal, but you find yourself owing fifty K more than you thought you were going to. Sure. Okay. Um, and it, so that whole thing wasn't your fault. You're not guilty, right. you know, whatever, whatever irresponsibility led to that, that business being 50 K in arrears, whatever, whoever's fault that was, it wasn't yours,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but you bought the business. It's not your responsibility. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, so you're, resp- so a dad is responsible for what's going on in his household. And, uh, and so I, I learned from my dad, my, my dad was in Christian ministry and he, he took um, the requirements of first Timothy three and Titus one uh, very seriously, which says that if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, then how's he qualified to, be, to manage the church? Uh, right. how, can, how can he be qualified to lead in the church when he can't even keep his own little rodeo? put together. Right. Um, and, and we knew either I'm the oldest of four, uh, we knew growing up, not because it was, we were ever threatened with it or anything like that. We just knew growing up that if any of us walked away from the Lord and became disobedient, you know, uh, hellions, if we just, if we veered off, if we veered off, uh, we knew that our dad would step down from the ministry mm-hmm. From, mm-hmm. that day. Sure. Not because he was guilty of the sins that we were committing, but he took responsibility. He, mm-hmm. he, you know, he said, "These are my kids. This is my family," uh, and he he never went in for, "Don't blame me. I didn't say that." Or, "Don't blame me." Right. He, he don't blame me. He hasn't had his nap yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So often- oftentimes, oftentimes we find ourselves making excuses all the time instead of simply taking responsibility and then the thing that um many people uh, and many men in the manosphere who are who are reacting to some of the follies of feminism yep think think that when i'm urging men to take responsibility they think that i'm joining in the chorus of blaming them. right no it uh, these are it's very important to distinguish the two because going back to the first comment if you take responsibility, I believe God has built an inexorable law into the world. If you take responsibility, authority flows in your direction. Mm-hmm. People, people want to hear what you have to say.
0: I think that's that's very important. Before we go on, um, there's a little interference that's coming from your, uh, from your earbuds. You, you can't hear it, but I can hear it on my end, so maybe the okay. battery's dying or something like that.
2: Is that any better?
0: We'll see we'll see the next after the next question.
2: <laughs> All right.
0: No, and and I uh, I saw that video, and that's one of my arguments against the Manosphere is that it is quite reactionary, and uh, it kind of shies away from taking on board some of the larger responsibilities of family of faith, of a household. It, it's very effective in speaking back against the excesses of feminism. It's very effective as a sort of technology, let's say, in getting men to stand up and take responsibility for their own lives personally. But where the manosphere begins to break down is in the notion of taking responsibility, active, dignified responsibility for anything beyond the man's self, let's say, personal but- fulfillment. But as soon as you begin thinking about family, as soon as you begin, which naturally leads into discussions of faith, Uh, That's where the manosphere begins to break down, and so it makes sense to me uh, because I think I heard uh, your discussion with Aaron Wren where you where you talked about that with regard to um, with regards to being a husband. Yes, that a a husband can be blameless and yet still have to take responsibility for his wife.
2: You have to get your masculinity to be able to travel farther than your man cave.
1: So, uh, (laughs) yes,
2: (laughs) right. So that what masculinity actually does is it builds civilizations. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, that's what it does. And instead of um, seeing men as sort of an aggrieved special interest group or uh, trying to get status as a new victim group, um, (laughs) the, the, the whole idea is to get men out of their irresponsibility at the individual level so that they can go build something positive. Right. So, that they, so that they can go do what I think God designed men to do. And as I'm fond of saying, civilizations are built by men with families to feed.
0: Yes. Yes, this is what I've been saying lately. A lot of men, you know, uh, particularly coming up through the manosphere, like movies like Fight Club, for example, or American Psycho. You know, they 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 find that there's something minimally aspirational in there somewhere. And I say, well, Fight Club as a movie is kind of a lie because the whole thing is like men allowed to express their masculinity in Fight Club will naturally become Project Mayhem. It's like, well, the lie of that movie is that none of these men have children right? Mm-hmm. They don't have, They, they, it's totally fine to blow up civilization because they don't have anyone that they need to invest in it. And that's the lie that hides at the, at the heart of that film. It's like, well, where, where are these men's families and kids? They don't have them. So naturally, right. you know, without that, without that impulse of what to build for the energy runs amok, but that's not how men are. Right. Right.
2: Now here's, there's another um, maybe optical illusion in this. Uh, and that has, when I said that, civilizations are built by men with families to feed that presupposes that the masculine energy is harnessed, which is different than saying the masculine energy is locked up in a cage or right exi- or exiled or put into, um, you know, uh, sent put in prison somehow mm-hmm. and, the, and the harnessing, the harnessing of masculine energy, um, has to do uh, functions in this way. I believe that there's no way that you can pass a law that will make mas- masculinity not dominant. Uh, right, men men will be dominant, yes. um, and the only choice you have with your laws or your customs is whether that dominance is going to be destructive or constructive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. You can. You, you can. Um, let's say in first grade take a first grade classroom where on average the girls are 9 months development developmentally ahead of the boys right sure. they, they they can make those letters on the on the piece of paper with the bark still in it they um <laughs> they, they, yeah. can, they they can make their letters perfectly and the boys and the girls can dominate the classroom within the rules within the academic parameters yes, yes. and and so the boys dominate the classroom by sitting in the back row and shooting spitballs and tipping cheer, chairs over. Right. Um, their their dominance, their insistence on being the center, is going to take on a destructive form. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so you're now what happens to a society where you, in effect, in effect, outlaw masculine constructive dominance. Mm-hmm. You you say whatever it happens. It's an evidence of bigotry or prejudice or suppression of women or, you know, whatever. Uh, If you outlaw constructive dominance, all you're going to do is mandate destructive dominance. And the the destructive dominance will either be overtly destructive, like criminal activity, antisocial activity, gang warfare, you know, that sort of thing. Or it will be uh, the destructive dominance of men simply going on strike where they check out right. um, they eat pizza in mom's base basement they mm-hmm. get, go in for video games and then all of a sudden the the civilization that somebody needs to be building uh, isn't being built isn't isn't happening That's right. now in order for this uh how do you get out of this situation where men are either on strike or in in destructive rebellion
3: mm-hmm.
2: well um, the, the, the there's a difference between the male sexual cycle and the female sexual cycle. The male and, and I'm talking about the way God made the world. Yeah. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about the current dogmas that you're gonna get at the university, but the way God actually made the yeah. uh, the way God made the world. The man's sexual cycle runs from arousal to climax. The woman's sexual cycle runs from arousal to when the kid graduates from college. <laughs>
3: okay yes
2: <laughs> okay um for, for okay for her sex involves mortgages and a lawn demo mow and curtains and a white picket fence and all, you know it, it involves a lot for the man it's simply a, almost a, a an incidental side activity right um because uh, a man could be the father to a hundred children that he never meets. A woman cannot be a, a mother to a hundred children she never meets.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? It just it, it, uh, This goes back to how God made the world. So what, ha- what happens is in order for civilization to function, uh, the man's sexual cycle has to be in some way subordinated to the woman's sexual cycle. Without robbing him of his masculinity, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, right. Um, if you if it goes the other way, if the woman's sexual cycle is subordinated to the male sexual cycle, what you get is all the civilization-building power of a motorcycle gang, or you know, right. with some women, some women riding along with it, or a boatload of Vikings, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got uh, the capacity to destroy. Rape and pillage, burn down villages. Mm-hmm. But what what you need is the man to be given a position of respected dominance. The where he's the head of his home,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and he's not he's not the titular head of his home. He's the actual head of his home. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, the vow he took in a church to be faithful to this woman and to provide for the children is. Uh, a transaction a social a social transaction uh, that he that he doesn't come out the loser on <laughs> right. right right so so she yeah. she gets something, she gets security protection uh provision, she gets a number of things, and the children get a stable household, and he gets a position of honor in society mm-hmm. okay and men Excellent. function. Men, yeah, men function with a code of honor um, far more readily than that's the coin that men are paid in. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, men uh, men require and need and traffic in respect, respect and honor, and women uh, with security and love and protection. Right. Okay. So We're, still, what we're still
0: getting some interference, by the way, from your buds. I don't mean to interrupt you, but okay. I want to make, make sure the point comes across. But please continue. Women, women traffic, and affection.
2: Traffic with the, um, this exchange, with this, um, um, basically, uh, this application of George Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw had a variation on the golden rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, do not do unto others as you would have them do unto you their tastes may not be the same. Right. Okay. So uh, the golden rule is wonderful for um, how to treat someone with a broken leg Well, you treat them the way you would like to be treated if you had a broken leg. Mm
3: -hmm. Um,
2: But it's a terrible rule for shopping for birthday presents. You
3: don't
2: don't give everybody what you would like. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the same way, what a man gives a woman is what a woman would like to receive. What a woman gives a man is what a man would like to receive. Mm-hmm. And the, the doctrine of egalitarianism says we all want the same thing. Right. But, but we don't.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Um, uh, men do not want the same thing out of a relationship that a woman wants. And women don't want the same thing out of a relationship that a man wants. And so there has to be some sort of intelligent um, negotiation of how of how this is all contracted, that delicate negotiation has resulted in marriage,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> right? right? An honored institution that is not an arbitrary sort of capricious thing, where men get grab whatever they want and women get the short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. That that's not what it was.
0: I was reading a book recently. I can't remember which one it was. That marriage, uh, and, and it stated a similar argument, but I like the way that you say it better because the the book um I think it I'm not sure I think it was Rolo Tomasi's recent book on religion, but what he what he talked about, what the author talked about was that women receive security and provision provision, and men receive assurance of a uh, fatherhood. They know that right. that that the child is their own. and i I like that argument because I think it's true, but I think it misses something really important that you just said that the actual motivation. It's it's very base and materialistic to say that all the thing a man, the only thing a man cares about in that arrangement is, I just want to make sure the kid's mine. Like, yes, of course we do want that. Uh-huh. But what you said is a position of honor in society. And I think that's a far more powerful motivator for men to enter into the contract of marriage and to treat it as sacred. If marriage and and noble fatherhood and husbandhood is held up as honorable within society, I think that's a far more powerful motivator than just say, okay, I just want to be assur- assurance of, of, of fatherhood of the kid. So I, right. I really like that
2: because the honor, the honor that's involved, goes back behind what, why. Uh, it, let's say the kid's not yours. Why is the kid not yours? Right. Well, the the kid is not yours because your wife didn't think you were enough. Okay, sure. um, so it's it reduces to honor. So it's a um, if if a man is a cuckold, if a man is uh, uh, has his wife running around and he doesn't know if the kid's his or not. Uh, because she's cheating on him, then what that means is that he is has been evaluated as being deficient in some fundamental way, mm-hmm. and and he's enough of a chump to feed and clothe and house and pay for college for somebody else's kid.
0: Right. <clears throat> I actually interviewed uh, Carnell Smith, who's a paternity fraud he's a consultant, he's not an attorney and paternity fraud is a much bigger problem than even, than I was, that I was aware of. And there are even laws. I think there's a law in France that a father can't request a DNA test of his own child without the Mm -hmm. mother's approval, which is a frightening thing to think about, to think how far we've sort of fallen as a society where it's like, oh, we're just, we're just permitting this kind of uh, dishonorable behavior to go on because we don't really respect marriage as an institution anymore. Just it's culturally in the air. It's kind of out yeah. there like, ah, whatever, we kind of throw it away, but it's the building block of so much.
2: Yeah. Or men being required to pay alimony for some other man's child.
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, how, how do we begin getting back to a place, you know, let's let's take it two directions then. So how do we begin getting back to a place of honoring marriage and society, and then what does Christianity have to have to have to do with with making that uh, making that possible? Because I, I, I'm wondering, is it possible to even do that without Christianity? I would say no, but maybe there is some way, and we can mine that gap between the two things.
2: Yeah, I I think it is possible to do. I don't think it's possible to do well, mm. right? Um, so I I think you can do it in a way that's functional, like in Confucian societies and in Hindu societies and Muslim societies, you do have something that's recognizably marriage. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, uh, marriage is not unique to Christian civilizations. Uh, so it is something that is a, a common grace institution. But I, I, at the same time, I think that there's a difference between um, the Christian view of marriage and some of these other view of marriages where you have, I think, uh, the possibility of achieving a really delicate balance that uh, grants the man the headship of the home and does so in a way that honors women and protects them, doesn't just protect them physically or protect them sexually, but also protects their dignity Mm -hmm. and and honor. So um, I I believe that, that Christian civilizations and the Christian understanding of marriage is um the the high point i think we've i don't Mm -hmm. think we've done better in in uh, human history i don't think we've done better than christian monogamous understanding of marriage i think that that's the best we can do so now that it's starting to erode um the the christian the previous christian consensus uh what we see happening is um obergefell same-sex um what I call same-sex mirage
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, polygamy is going to come back in home is where uh, family is defined as where you hang your hat and whatever you, whatever arrangement you might want to cook up, let's just call that a family or let's just call that marriage. And I think we're going, what we're going to see is uh, the disintegration of, um, of society uh, Mm -hmm. on account of that. If you want to bake a cake, a good cook is going to tell you you have the ingredients have to go in in a certain order. You All have right. to follow you'd have to follow it a certain way. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart.
0: Right. Before we get into that, the 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 interference on the earbuds is getting a little is getting a little distracting. So maybe we can try just how's that? Oh, that's so much better.
3: <laughs> okay. He
2: says it's so much better. Okay. Good. Okay.
0: Ah, thank you so much for for oh, that. You're welcome. Okay. So let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about honoring, honoring women then, because that was one of the, that was one of the uh, moving passages that uh, when we, when we teach men that they don't need to honor women, guess what happens? Men dishonor, men dishonor women and they start using women as objects. And we have right. cultural sanction for this. And it's like, we lead to all the ills that we're observing all the time because we, we decided to wreck the gender roles. Um, right. Yeah.
2: N- n- and, and it's gotten- the the i think any kind of common sense uh christian could have told you this is going to go poorly this is mm-hmm. not going to be good um but it's gotten to perverse and demented levels right um where you know a, an example would be slut walks for example
3: mm-hmm.
2: um uh where a, a woman behaves like a slut and a tramp and tries to pretend that that is somehow empowering, right? Um, how how on what planet what, you know um, you're not respecting yourself at all? Um, men have used women sexually. They've, they've been prostitutes forever. The old is called the oldest pr- profession f- for a reason, mm-hmm. and men have known for millennia what they think of hookers, which is not very much, right? Right. Right, yeah, um, and so uh, the the, you know occasionally you will have some courtesan who is the consort of princes and kings who you know who is influential and empowered, and that one person out of a million, you could argue on a physical level is empowered, but that's simply not the way uh, the life goes for women generally. If you want. Uh, women to be sexual beings and to be respected and honored, you have to have something like matrimony. You have to have the concept of a lady, and um, and that's what the what Christendom uh, succeeded in producing.
0: Do you do you think that Christendom is still successful in producing? Men and women of this sort, because this is the question that my friends and all my friends get into: is that we 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 come to Christianity and we find the answers that we're looking for. We're like, well, where are the answers? Where are the answers within the church body now? And I think that's that's a big question that many men are grappling with: how do we bring these values back in an, in an arena that's supposed to have them?
2: Yeah. So let me uh, uh, answer the question that way. I would say yes, very much. Th- these virtues are still functional and operative in outlawed enclaves
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i suppose yes
2: okay so um i i live in a christian community Mm -hmm. where these things are honored and respected and practiced and pursued by men and women both um and that with thousands of people functioning in this christian community and i know of other christian communities around the nation where the same thing is true Mm -hmm. Um, but the other thing that is true about about it is that the the leaders and uh, pastors and um, forces behind these sort of enclaves are not allowed anywhere near the microphone, uh, as a way of representing evangelicals. So, in the po- the post war, post World War II rise of the evangelical movement. Um, Immediately after the second world War, evangelicals were basically fundamentalists with the smiley face you know uh, <laughs> f- fundamentalists who were nice yeah. um, and the fundamentalists were a little more combative, and I would say saw what was coming actually mm-hmm. a little more clearly yeah uh, the so among evangelicals, there was always this view that if we just are winsome if we if we're just winsome then the people who are running the secular operation, uh, this secular society are going to be attracted to what um, we are doing. And what actually wound up happening is they were um, able to subvert what we were doing.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So um, the evangelical conference circuit, the leadership, uh, what uh, I think Carl Truman uh, called big Eva Mm -hmm. um, that, that, consortium of of evangelical power brokers and gatekeepers and whatnot have been very successful in keeping representatives of the older traditional Christian se- sexual ethic mm-hmm. away from the microphone or to tar it with, um, well, they're a bunch of pa- patriarchal, you mm-hmm. know, uh, prudes, uh, prudes, yeah patriar- patriarchal bigots
0: so i'm I'm new to the faith. I was baptized in september of 2020 so i'm I'm figuring all this out like looking into this in, into the history and I, I wasn't aware that there that there were these communities where it's where it's actually being practiced but that it's not allowed to surface so you're sort of on this sort of vanguard leading edge of like no we're going to start actually talking about it out there in the world along with right. many others and, and sort of instead of just keeping it hidden away
2: right and so we've um, for some decades now we've had our own publications and, and done our try to promote what we're doing. Uh, But we have been under a very deliberate um, embargo. I'll I'll put it that way. So um, uh, what, what we have been saying, what we've been trying to articulate has been uh, very clearly um, trying to get these guys out of the, you know, don't quote them, don't retweet them, don't reference wow. them. These people must not be named, okay? Oh, wow. Now, what ha- what has happened, and this is in the providence of God, uh, we've been publishing and talking and preaching and doing these for th- things for many years. And most of those years we've been under this embargo from fellow conservative Christians, right? Mm-hmm. right? Um, but there's a kind of conservative that thinks that conservatism means losing slowly. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes, losing at the speed limit.
2: Right, losing at the speed limit, right. Uh, The Democrats want to drive off the cliff at 85 miles an hour. The Republicans want to go 55 uh, (laughs) (laughs) off the the cliff. And so for the conservatives who think that conservatism means losing slowly, uh, the conservatives who want to actually win who want to have a place in the world where what we are arguing for is, um, practiced and honored and expanding, right? We, we want to see that, uh, that kind of, uh, conservatism is, um, is sort of relegated to, well, they're extremists or they're, you know, they do all these bad things or they, um, and so that's what we've had to deal with up until the last two years um
0: <laughs> understandably
2: so what happened in the last 2 years is uh all of a sudden the things that we were saying that seemed extreme before uh seem like man you guys are in the middle of the road standing on the yellow line <laughs> um <laughs> yeah but, uh, let's check out oh what what was that book again and so we have seen the um the embargo basically has been um destroyed so yes. over the, over the last two years so the enclaves that i've been talking about uh these people now are getting a hearing uh in a way that they never were allowed to get a hearing before because uh losing slowly is no longer tenable because right. if you're going to lose at all you're going to lose quick
3: yeah
2: uh, right mm-hmm. um because the uh the the whole uh the mask has come off basically Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the secular society has no room for free speech, no room for uh, religious liberty, no room for personal convictions. And they're, they're shooting the moon. They're going for all of it. Yeah. And so anybody who says, hey, listen, uh, like Hezekiah, peace and safety in my time, uh, people are starting to realize if you surrender at all, if you agree to go slowly, it's not going to be slow. Mm-hmm. You've, got to put a, you've got to put up a fight. And, and people are turning to those people who have been fighting, who have demonstrated that they know how to fight.
0: Men, I'll cut right to it. There's probably something missing from your life, and I bet you don't even know. And that is a mission or purpose. A mission is more than a job, a career, or even a vocation or hobby. It's bigger than that. It's a godly pursuit that underlies all your most significant thoughts, words, and actions. If you seek to lead your family and your household, your purpose is the direction you're leading yourself in, and therefore your family undertakes the journey with you. Your purpose takes you beyond yourself, challenges you to expand your self-concept, confront your fears, acquire new skills, forge durable bonds of friendship and brotherhood, and, most importantly, helps you contribute to the rebuilding of civilization. If that sounds too good to be true, it isn't. Because your purpose is a gift. But here's the catch. To receive that gift, you must be ready for it. And that is the nature of my coaching. I'm a man who has been blessed with a purpose. And it's more than just this podcast. I've got something I'm working on behind the scenes that I know you're going to love. And pursuing that purpose has taught me the secrets of what it takes to cultivate the purpose. Now I want to pass that on to you. Having a purpose has changed my life and I think it can change yours too. And to do that, we have work to do. If you're interested in learning more, the content on my website is currently being updated to reflect my new program. In the meantime, email me at info at to start the conversation and schedule a free 30-minute consultation. Mention the code word PURPOSE and I'll offer 10% off a 12-week package. I'll also let you in on my top secret purpose behind the scenes so you can see that I know what I'm talking about. Once again, email me at info at and mention the code purpose to get 10% off a 12-week package. I started the Renaissance of Men to help men become the best versions of themselves through self-knowledge. If that sounds like you or the version of yourself you want to be, email me and let's get started. So this, this embargo, was this embargo, is this like Pay no attention to those guys over there. They're not with us. That kind of embargo, or is it actually like active attempts to suppress the message of of what you guys have got going on? Like, because you also talked, It's both. It's oh.
2: both. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, um, I'll, I'll just give a, a generic example, but this yeah. is the kind of thing that happened multiple times. We would contact some respected figure in the evangelical world because we are holding a conference here, and we would invite them to the conference. Mm-hmm. and they would agree to come and then pressure behind the scenes would be applied to them and they would cancel wow okay and it's not just and it's not a matter of us guessing that a pressure was applied we know we know that pressure was applied and wow. um and and we I'll I'll say uh, the way we know this is this is the ca- the category of how we know some of these things some of it was technology, some of it was uh second or third tier people in these organizations
3: mm-hmm. who
2: were fans of what we were doing, who liked what we were putting out, but who couldn't say so. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes. and knew why they couldn't say so. And sometimes it would get back to us, you know, uh what the what the chatter behind the scenes was. Mm-hmm. So basically this embargo was. Deliberate and conscious. Let's just try to steer clear of those guys. That's one hand. On the one hand, or let's try to shut them down uh, whenever they try to do something.
0: And so now they've. So now it's kind of two things. It's like you've they've kind of let you out let you out of the embargo a little bit. And also there's the democratizing tools of technology like YouTube and you know the Canon Plus app and stuff where you can put the message out directly to people. And they've also lifted the embargo a little bit.
2: And and some of it is. Some of them have been uh, discredited themselves. It's uh, sort okay. of like um, uh, the, they're in the position that Neville Chamberlain was a month into World War II. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay.
0: Yes. Uh, uh,
2: okay. All of a sudden, he was a respected voice um, in the years prior to the war. Yeah. But all of a sudden, events discredited, uh, the events overtook him and discredited everything. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think we're in that position now, with some of the respected voices five years ago, not getting the traction that they used to get because nothing, nothing is unfolded according to the plan,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: and that means uh, when you, I saw a meme, you know, it's uh, that sort of represents this. It's it's started it's starting to look as though you should ask whether your current boyfriend is uh, dystopic. Uh, warlord material. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? In other words, the things that used to be valued are not a value anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, with with everything sliding in the direction that it has, you know, since twenty twenty, since COVID, since the acceleration of everything, of everything, cultural insanity and degeneracy, it's a little bit like, well, who are the who are the actual warriors with a position to push to push back from? You know, right. where is like when 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 you when you dig so down, so far down into degeneracy, you need someone who's equally firmly rooted in something that's truly regenerative. And the only answer for that is the kind of is the kind of Christianity that I hear you and 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 uh, the guys in in your community preaching such as Toby Sumter, c. r. Wiley, Jeff Durbin, who's the pastor of my church down here in Apologia and Phoenix. That's that's where the actual resistance, you know, can can come from. Because where else is it going to come from? Yeah, where you have to be rooted something so much deeper than just materialism.
2: Right, and and uh, Apologia, that whole that uh, community is one of the enclaves I was I would refer to.
0: Oh great! Okay, well, I'm, I've I just had You're my mem- I just You're had my in membership <laughs> interview yesterday. So or no, two days ago. Yeah, a minute. Okay, cool. So, so I didn't I didn't even realize. So okay, so this is this is really important because this is a trend that I'm observing, particularly within the men's space, as men are beginning to find their way to Christianity from all these different all these different avenues, particularly the new age kind of universalist pluralist world. They're finding that, especially after COVID, that there's no resistance coming from that world, and lots of people going over to the side of the mandatory cookies as as Jeff Durbin would say, and they're finding their way into Christianity. It also seems like there's a resurgence or a revival, if I can use that word within Christianity itself, particularly around masculinity, because men are looking for ways to fight back from within themselves, from a faith, from a faith perspective. So it makes sense why you guys would be getting the exposure, the traction, you know, the, the, um, the clicks and the views, I guess you'd say now prior to anything, because what are we going to, what are we going to use to fight back against this cultural war?
2: exactly
0: so what's it like what's it like for you kind of being on the the leading edge of this perhaps unexpected maybe
2: yeah it was um i saw uh, um i have to say that i saw in principle the things that were coming decades ago and mm-hmm. i would write about it and it's in print but i i have to confess that i did not uh realize how crazy it would get and how quickly right you, you know um Okay, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. That's going to be bad. Uh, then all of a sudden we're off a cliff, and um, and yeah, and I and I would say things like in the past, um, if this keeps up, we're going to go off a cliff. I would say things like that, but seeing that you're going to go off a cliff and going off a cliff are two different experiences.
0: Right? That's awesome. Yes. <laughs>
2: <Right>? <laughs> so in one sense, uh, in one sense, I've been talking about this. Virtually my whole adult ministry, mm-hmm. and in another sense, it is it's astonishing,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, and one, one of the things that we've the one of the most uh, astonishing things about it is that we've been talking about the need for fathers, the need. Uh, one of my books that I wrote maybe ten years ago, it's called Father Hunger, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so we've been talking about the need for father hunger, and I've been able to see the father hunger everywhere um but i uh, i have did not see how hungry people how r- people who are famished if there's a famine of yeah. fatherhood what ha- what happens well what happens one of the things that happens is land migrations uh and we are we are now in the position where there's a great reshuffle happening all over um the united states mm-hmm. where california is emptying out yeah right? Texas and Idaho are filling up Arizona. Because, uh, yeah. People are saying the, our fathers here in California are simply abusive fathers.
3: Yeah. Abdicating. It's, a,
2: it's an, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's an abusive relationship. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm heading out and we have in the last two years awesome. here in Moscow, we have seen, uh, a massive influx of people who, from all over the United States, who have pulled up stakes and have moved here. And I've never seen anything like it. And that was one one of the downstream consequences of all this that I hadn't anticipated
0: just blew my mind because the notion of people who stay in California and celebrate California as, as being, um, as being sort of, I guess, addicted to an abusive relationship with a father is something that I'm have to spend a lot of time thinking about. But so, okay. So, so I live in Arizona and this is a conversation that many people are having here. It's like people are leaving the blue States and they're coming to the red States. And are they actually able to abandon their blue state values and come into reconciliation with the father when they move land? When they move, right. like, are you experiencing that? Cause that's the big question, right? I hadn't thought of it as a father oriented question, but you're absolutely right.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you want to, the exhortation is we we were thinking of doing an ad campaign of, uh, welcome to Idaho, wipe the blue off your feet. Oh, that's you know, good. You know,
3: yeah. Yeah. You
2: know, um, don't, don't move to Idaho and continue to vote the way you voted down there. Right. Um, because you, you can't flee the, the downstream destuc- destructive consequences of that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like uh, you don't want people fleeing or moving because they're about to have an illegitimate baby. And instead of being eight months pregnant, they want to be three months pregnant. Right. You, that's not how this, th- this can only be addressed with, tr- with true repentance. It's not yes. a geographical shift. It's not a political shift. Right. It it has to be uh, a, a fundamental um, question of repentance before God.
0: I agree, and I, you know, I, I actually I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't thought of it as if you're gonna if you're gonna come to these new states, if you're gonna move to Texas, if you're gonna move to Florida or Tennessee or Arizona or Idaho or whatever, that you're gonna have to I, you have to repent before God, and you're gonna have to adopt a new way of living. But bringing those people into reconciliation with the Father energy. That, that they've so abandoned in their previous blue state existences, right. I, I actually hadn't thought of that dimension. So as, how are you seeing that unfold in Moscow with people coming? Do they recognize that they're looking for father energy or do they figure it out, you know, in, yeah. enough to wipe the blue off their feet?
2: Right. Um, we, we are seeing in this um, uh, land migration, we are, yeah. and, and I'm talking about hundreds of people over, yeah. the, over the last year, hundreds of people. Wow. Uh, many of them with little kids, overwhelmingly, I'd say 90%, uh, know that it has to do with marriage and family and masculinity. Um, it's very encouraging. It's, it, it is very encouraging. Now, some of them are in varying states of disarray. Some of them, right. uh, and I would say most of the people arriving here now were the most checked out people in the places where they, they're coming from uh, they were the most together when it comes to marriage and family. Um, uh, and in previous years, sometimes people, uh, would move to a a community like ours because you're the last hope for our marriage. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, we've tried everything. We're, we're even willing to try this. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but in this wave, we're seeing the people largely up to speed already. Um, they've read a bunch of the books already. They've taken responsibility for their kids and their kids' um, uh, spiritual condition already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm greatly heartened that way. And so what we need to do is a little bit of encouragement and sandpaper here and there, and also uh, let them sandpaper us because we've been teaching these things for so long that it's easy to get a little raggedy on some of the details. And someone who's read all the books and who's up to speed might say, Hey, but you said.
0: You're <laughs> <laughs> being held to your own standard, right?
2: Yeah, being held to your own standard. So uh, we we see ourselves being encouraged by their gifts and graces, just as we want to encourage them with ours.
0: Can I ask for an example of of one thing that kind of pulled up on or your community was pulled up on in the past? I was like, Oh, thanks for, thanks for bringing us back into alignment.
2: Uh, sure. Um, when, um, and and these are things that we would have acknowledged on on paper, mm-hmm. but uh, so for example, Logos School is uh, is our classical Christian school mm-hmm. here, and uh, a lot of times, uh, especially when you're dealing with institutions like a school mm-hmm. where you have hundreds of people and people being people, um, the brochure uh, can be a little bit glossier than the reality.
0: Oh, got it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Right, um, and we've we've always known that we've had a letter for years that we've sent out to people. Hey, look, when you move here, we don't walk on water. We don't, you know, you have to, you know, don't don't have us up on a pedestal. When you move here, don't have us up on a pedestal. But you have to But we are on a pedestal. Mm. And sure. people are going and and if the pedestal is a scriptural one, if we said Christian schools ought to operate this way uh, and someone moves here and they say, so are you going to operate this? So uh, what about this? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, parent, teacher community. I'm just giving you samples of the sort of thing. It could be uh, parent, teacher communication or or. Um, uh, this the school serving in local parentis in the place of the parents, not as a substitute for the parents, but mm-hmm. that 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 kind of thing.
0: So this actually gets to another question. Tell me a bit about what it looks like, you know, up in Moscow. I know you've got the the Church, and it sounds like there's actually a lot more going on there than would be evident from an outsider, just kind of watching what's happening on YouTube. I know you've got the ministry. What sort of it sounds like you've got a school, what other things do you have going on up there? Because you say enclave. And uh, I think that means more than just a community. It sounds like it means something much more su- supporting of different aspects of life.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, I said enclave, not compound. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for that clarification.
2: Yeah, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's no, no concertina wire. <laughs> yes. um,
0: Vital distinctions.
2: Um, so uh, just to contextualize this, we're up in the panhandle of Idaho. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a be- really beautiful country up here. Yeah. and moscow is a town of about probably 20 to 25,000 people there's a university here university of idaho's here washington mm-hmm. state university is 8 miles away in the state of washington right across the border in pullman washington so it's mm-hmm. two small towns with two major universities in them uh so that's the uh, that's the setting and as uh college towns, American college towns, the default drive would be fairly liberal. So right. Moscow has, for for many years, was what you might describe as a blue dot in a very red state. Oh, wow. Okay? Okay. Um, and what's happened as a result of the growth of the Christian community here is the blue dot has, uh, uh, Moscow is turning purple, but <laughs> in a way that goes the, the direction opposite that most things turn purple um uh, most things turning purple are red oh, states becoming uh blue yeah like Houston becoming purple um right. that that kind of thing um but this is turning purple the other way and it's because of the growth of the christian uh community so we have uh, in this town of 25,000 people we have um three churches three reformed churches that have been established here logos school uh has got 600 um next year there'll be over 600 students at a private christian school and in a town our size that is sort of staggering yeah um we've got a few other schools uh homeschool co-op um uh a special needs christian school that's that's in our community. Um, uh, Logos Online is an on, online system of instruction. So we calculated about a within the last year, approximately 30, I would say about 35% of the school-aged children in Moscow are receiving a private Christian education.
0: That's amazing.
2: Okay, so that's um, education. There's also a college here, um, New Saint Andrews College, which we founded has a couple hundred um, students in it, including a graduate school. Um, we have Canon Press and a, another publishing house, Roman Roads. Canon Press is going great guns uh, yeah. with the Canon Plus app. And there's a torrent of material that's being um, uh, produced by them. Uh, ACCS is the Association of Classical Christian Schools uh, that started here in Moscow. With Logos School, but that's now a national association um, with hundreds of Christian schools around the country. So it's uh, quite an ecosystem: a college, um, uh, lower uh, education, K through twelve education, multiple churches, publishing houses, and then there's an entrepreneurial uh, vibe among the Christians, Mm -hmm. where many of them are starting. Businesses, um, whether software or restaurants or that that sort of thing, there's a lot of energy that way.
0: That's incredible. That's way more than I would have expected. And one of the things I've been saying is that it's if we want to fight against institutions, we're going to need to build institutions because the likelihood of reclaiming the institutions is quite low. So we can build our own institutions to push back and serve people's needs. That's where the that's where the fight really is. And it sounds like right. in your community, you're fighting institutionally
2: right we are we're we're building an alternative parallel economy that is but we're not doing it like the amish where we right. have seceded from the from the dominant economy but we have distinguished ourselves enough so that we can continue to exercise common sense legally
0: mhm So I want to ask a quick question about your 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 book, Rules for Reformers, because is this is this kind of some of these practices grow out of that book?
2: Um, Yes, or the book was um, sort of a codification or explanation of uh, why we did some of the things uh, we did the way we did them. Mm -hmm. So um, a number of years ago, Saul Alinsky wrote um, uh, uh, his book Rules for Radicals, and Alinsky had a, a huge um, impact on our yeah. country uh, yeah. through Hillary Clinton, through Obama, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what I did is I I wrote a Christian version of rules for radicals, which is rules for reformers. Uh, we don't believe in quick fix. Uh, we don't believe in quick fixes. That's what distinguishes a, a Christian laborer from a revolutionary. Revolutionaries are impatient. And, and they want it now. And reformers are patient. Uh, the, the Catholic historian Christopher Dawson said that the Christian church lives in the light of eternity and can afford to be patient.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and so we want to be reformers. We want to leave the place better than we found it, but we don't expect any magic to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. It's going to take... It's gonna take some, it's gonna take some time. Is, yeah, is it's kind like of yeast,
2: is it. it's like yeast working through the loaf.
0: <laughs> yes, I mean that's the that's the whole idea. It's like we've got we've got a battle for battle for eternity. So I wanna be respectful of your time. I know that uh you've got many, many things coming up, but just one more quick, one. it's really two questions in one. So right. for the for the existing Christians who are listening to this, what can what can they do? To further their faith in alongside uh, fighting the cultural war, and for men who are new to the faith like myself what can what can we do to participate in this as well because there are a couple different listeners here
2: okay so um, if if you have uh, i 'll say this generally to Christians everywhere who who what can I do mm-hmm. uh, the great uh, p j O 'Rourke, who just passed away a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, once said, "Everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes." Right, right. Um, Your our duties are in front of us. Our neighbor is in front of us. Mm-hmm. I should uh, I should resolve before God to live like a Christian today, this morning, mm-hmm. in the things that God assigns to me this morning. The person who took my parking spot, the. The person who's too slow in the checkout line ahead of mm-hmm. me, the um, my my kids who are sick again, you know that, you know whatever it is, my duties right. are in front in front of me, and if I embrace my response my my duties, I take on responsibility gladly. That if you're a man, you're that's masculinity, you're taking it on gladly, and I think the authority to do more, then flows to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Um, that, that, that'd be the thing I would tell everybody, um, is don't get distracted. Think cosmic. If I could borrow a a phrase and, and alter it from the progressives, I would say, think cosmically act locally. <laughs> okay.
3: Yes. Yes. Okay.
2: okay. Yeah. think Jesus is Lord. He's at the right hand of God, the father. Uh, he is bringing all things into subjection to him act locally. Um, Help mom with the dishes. That, so that's what I would say. The the, the second thing is uh, for those people who are interested in Christianity, or who have just recently returned to the faith or come to the faith. Um, this is the the I, I would say what I just said applies to them as well. But um, but the the thing that I would encourage uh, young Christians to do is give yourselves over to reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is you're you're sort of in the privileged position of being fresh off the boat, <laughs> you know. You, you just got here, and you, uh, you said, "I just emigrated to America from Lithuania." And uh, what do I do? Um, and someone gives him a, a copy of the Constitution uh, and says, "Read this." Well, if he reads it ten times, as a good Lithuanian immigrant. He's probably read it 10 times more than the average American has done.
3: Right. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay. So um, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I'm an evangelical. As I like to say about evangelicals, I love every bone in their heads, right?
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's so amazing.
2: And so um, the people who are new Christians who, who say, I want to read the Bible. I want to know what the Bible says. You're going to if you if you become a dedicated Bible reader from the very beginning, it's going to preserve you from a lot of traditions that have cropped up in Mm -hmm. evangelical circles that are not necessarily biblical.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. Uh Um, Yeah. And and so, uh, like I said, immigrants who come to Moscow who can maybe say, "Hey, you said." Uh, new Christians can say to old time Christians, "Hey, the Bible says this. Why aren't we doing this?"
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> by the way, uh,
2: by the way, yeah. I guess that's a, I guess that's a good question. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, we had a presbytery, our, the presbytery of our denomination, communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, just had a, uh, our presbytery meeting yesterday, and uh, here it was here in Moscow this time. And I was uh, one of my brother fellow ministers uh, told the story about how he was preaching, uh, and he was preaching on baptism, going over it, and he said, "You know, in the New Testament, um, uh, when someone was converted, they said someone would say, "Well, here's some water. well, let's baptize them." They, they didn't have to go through the new members' class for six months, or mm-hmm. you. Know, um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: And he, he preached that in a sermon. And they have a, in their service, they have a passing of the peace that's uh, where they all greet each other. And during the passing of the peace, a new family to the, uh, to the church came up to him and said, my younger children aren't baptized. Um, and, and you said that (laughs) this is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Can we do that? And, uh, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's, let's do what we said the Bible says to do. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's, um, and, and that's, and that's the, um, probably the biggest thing is, and, and I would hearken back to my dad, something I learned from him very much, was you're reading the Bible, ask yourself in an ongoing way, what is there in what I've read today for me to do?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: How, how can I apply this?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: To whom can I apply this? When can I apply this? What circumstances? So always think, always be thinking in terms of application. The Bible is meant to be obeyed.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I <laughs> I've got so many more questions. Uh, so many more questions that I want to ask, particularly how particularly how that all feeds into post millennialism. I don't know if you want to talk about that for a minute, or if you have a moment to talk about I, it. I've, but... I've
2: got one more. Mo- I've, I always love to talk about post millennialism. So mm-hmm. I've got a, uh, I've got a moment more to talk about it, and I would be happy to do this again sometime. Do you want? I to? Would...
0: I would, I would love that because this is one of the questions that a lot of men have. They look around and they see the world on fire and they say, you know, reformers are talking about post-millennialism. Don't worry. The war is already won. It's like, well, when you look around, there's my eyes say this and my face says this and, and trying to get men to reconcile those two, those two perspectives.
3: Yeah.
2: So um, this is the thing I would say about that. In the long run, stupidity doesn't work. <laughs>
1: OK, yes. <laughs>
2: Right. <laughs> there's no I've tried there, it. there is no place you can go. There's no world you can create where where stupidity is a, an effective strategy. Right. And so one of the things that we have to recognize is what the what the progressives are currently doing, what the secularists are current, currently doing is destroying their own project.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They're burning. Uh, what what are they burning down? They're burning down their own project. Whose children are they aborting? They're aborting their own children. Mm-hmm. What what social glue have they abandoned in what they are using to build what they want to build? They've abandoned the social glue that God gave us, which is marriage.
3: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, yeah. um, and what we need to do is hold firm and refuse to um, refuse to abandon any of those things, whatever names they call us. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is. Um, so my, my, uh, post-millennial hope functions this way. Uh, the, the kingdom of God does not get better every instant in every way, as though we're comparing it to the space shuttle taking off. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we, it's not like we gain altitude every minute. Um, it's more like walking up the foothills of the Rockies. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if I keep walking West, if I'm, you know, if I'm in uh, Nebraska, and I'm walking west uh, toward Colorado, and I start walking up the foothills, as long as I'm walking west, I'm going to be going up.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Okay, but there will be there will be periods where I'm down in a gulch, or I'm down in a valley, or I'm, uh, you know, here's a ravine, there's no way to get across the ravine, except by climbing down and coming up. Um, But if I keep steady on, I'm going to be at the Continental Divide
3: mm-hmm. at some point, right.
2: All right? So the way you look, the way to evaluate postmillennialism is not it is if you look at it in terms of five year increments, uh, Christian history will be v- grossly misleading
3: mm-hmm.
2: because sometimes you're in the ravine, sometimes you're on a little, little hill, sometimes, mm-hmm. right? But keep going west. And so, what you have to do is look at it in five hundred year increments
3: mm-hmm.
2: okay mm-hmm. would I rather yeah. be alive today or in fifteen hundred <laughs> would I rather be alive to in fifteen hundred or in one thousand? Mm-hmm. would I rather be alive in one thousand or five hundred and with the, with that in view, I think you can see uh, go back to dawson's comment, We live in the light of eternity and can afford to be patient, and we 're not discouraged by um the, this particular secularist revolt that we're going through, the sexual revolution that we're enduring right now, mm-hmm. is a short term abortive rebellion that will fail.
0: Mm. I agree. Thank you for that. Thank you for that word because I agree very much. So, where can men go to find out more about you and what you do that you haven't already listed? So, you got the Canon Plus app, yeah. you got the, you got a policy. Okay.
2: you got not a So, if um, the, probably the, the clearinghouse, the place to go would be my blog which is, uh, the address is dougwills.com. Mm-hmm. And the name of it is blog and may blog. So if you go to blog and may blog, basically everything I'm involved in is, there's a link, there's a, uh, there's a way to get to everything else that I'm involved in off the front page there. So just go to the front page, open it up and scroll down and you'll see New St. Andrews and Logos School and ACCS, <laughs> Canon Press, all the rest of it.
0: Excellent. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for this conversation. I I definitely look forward to doing this again because I have so many more questions that I've learned so much already.
2: All right. Feel free.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much.
2: God bless.